Lord God, Heavenly Father, as we continue to celebrate Holy Trinity, we rejoice that as you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that all things that you reveal to us, you do so to accomplish our salvation and to teach us about your love for us and how we ought to love one another. So as you read these words of the book of Acts, we are once again instructed that how you worked in the early church to bring this gospel message to the entire world at that time. And we pray that you would encourage us and empower us with these words to live our faith, trusting that you are still a God who works in this world through your word, through your sacraments, through your church, that we might be for, go forth as instruments of your word. So bless us this night. Let us see our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Okay, so Acts 11, as you remember, the church is now in Antioch. Um, the, as the people scatter from Jerusalem due to, due to persecution, they bring the gospel around, and some people start actually talking to non-Jews, non-Jewish people about the gospel, and they start believing. So um, Antioch is one of these places where this is happening. They go to Antioch. And remember, the Antioch is where we are first called Christians. Okay, that's where the word Christian is first labeled or given as a label to those who follow Jesus. So uh, we talked last week about how that word means, at this point in history, it means devoted to Christ or attached to Christ in some way. So that's kind of a good thing. Okay, do you remember all that? We got, we got Barnabas working here. And he's going to go get Saul. So we got Saul and Barnabas starting to work out. And that's going to push ahead to the rest of the book of Acts where they go on missionary journeys together until they separate. And they've got that issue, but we'll get there. Okay. So we got Barnabas and Saul. Okay. Any questions or thoughts? By the way, if you ever have a question about something we're not talking about, you can ask. And we'll answer. Or we'll not answer, depending on the question. I don't know, I'll say, I don't know. But seriously, if you ever think of something that we're not covering, just ask, it's fine. We're all friends here. Okay, if you think of something, just ask in any time. Well, let's just read, though, in the meantime. Acts 11, verses 27 through 30. Okay, thank you very much. So, number one, why down from Jerusalem? Antioch is north, so we would usually say up. But the Bible says down. Why? It's got to be sea level then, What does? Physically lower. Yeah, Antioch is physically lower than Jerusalem. That's exactly right. The reason um, you'll read this throughout the New Testament, actually in the Old Testament too, is that Jerusalem is up because it's on top of a hill. Yeah, yeah. Like literally. So Jerusalem is up on a hill. And so you always go down from Jerusalem or you go up to Jerusalem. Okay, you ascend to the holy hill. And this is a physical reality, as in like, you literally go up and down, but it also is a spiritual reality. So remember, Jerusalem is the, the city of God. It's the, it's the capital city of Israel, right? But also within Jerusalem is the city of David, which is called Zion, right? And if you read the Psalms enough, you'll read a lot about Zion. Like, I want to go home to Zion. We are going to go marching into Zion. Who comes into Zion? The Lord lives in Zion. The people of God live in Zion. Okay? So, this Zion, which is part of Jerusalem, this becomes kind of symbolic for the place where God and his people live. Okay? And what you'll remember is in the Old Testament, the whole program of evangelism is make Jerusalem so attractive that everyone on earth wants to go to 
Jerusalem, right? That was the goal. And when they come to Jerusalem, they will come and meet the God of Jerusalem, the God of Zion. His name is Yahweh, okay? And, and he's there because he lives in his temple. That's where gods live. Gods live in temples, right? Kings live in castles or palaces. Gods live in temples. That's why it's called a temple. So when, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, that's where God lives. And so you want everyone to come to God's house so you can meet God. Right? Hello? That's, that's old Israel. That's the way the Old Testament works. Well, that's kind of the way it works today. Why do you come here every Sunday? That's where God is. That's exactly right. And and what do you teach your kids? You're like, okay, we don't, we don't, I was taught this a lot. We don't punch our brother in church because God lives there. We don't do gymnastics in church. We don't do gymnastics in church because, well, why? Why don't you run in church? What do you tell your kids? It's God's house. It's God's house. Is that wrong? No, this is where God lives, Right. Now, when I was a kid, I thought, you know, like the, the place where the, the pastor went to change his robes, I was like, ooh, God's probably in there. I ain't going back there. <laughs> uh-uh. And I kind of, you know, my mom and my dad helped clean. We had a little church when I was growing up in Belgium. And we would help clean up after church, like sweep the floors and stuff. And I kind of I watched the door. I was like, if he comes out, I'm out. I'm leaving. You know, like, I, I don't know what that means, but I knew I was scared. But it was, but I actually believed that God lived there and he was there and, and that's the impression as you walk into church and you go oh this place is different because God lives here and that's not bad that's not a bad thing to think about when you walk into church is we do act a little different in that room we, we speak different language we sing different songs we have a different kind of music right we, we spend time doing things we don't do anywhere else in the world we dress differently we hold ourselves differently. We have a little sense of decorum about us, and we kind of walk around a little differently, maybe. We sit in different chairs. I don't have a few in my house. Do I? We used to have a few. We don't anymore. We don't have pews at our house. But, you know, it's all different. Why? It's God's house. Right? And so what people say is, well, what did you do this weekend? You say, well, I, you know, went to church. Why would you do that? Well, because that's where God lives right it's not bad it's good you can invite them you can say you can go to my church Jesus shows up every week so it's not bad okay Thought, thoughts or comments somebody else comments so they were using I mean they wanted something big and fancy to attract people even back then yeah so that was actually God's design God told them make Jerusalem awesome and everybody will come the nations will stream to Jerusalem and when they do, they will see the glory of Yahweh. Now, what the clincher is, is that they will all stream to Jerusalem, and the, the, what they will see in Jerusalem is the glory of God. Right? Now think about this. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate put above his head a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he wrote it in three languages. And the gospel say, and everyone saw it because the place where he was crucified was a place where everyone walked by. So what's happening? People are going to Jerusalem and everyone's seeing the glory of God. As a matter of fact, the temple of God. David's son. Right? The holy city. Zion. The king. It's all right there on the cross. And that's why all of this sucks us up to the cross. And this whole idea in John, we talked about this on Sunday, right? High and lifted up. Who is that? That's Yahweh. That's the servant of Yahweh. That's Jesus on his cross. This exalted, lifted up idea is God in the flesh dwelling among his people. Have you ever thought of this? Let's, let's just do this because, you know, we're not going to finish Acts 11 tonight. That's just what it goes. So go back to John. It's just the right, it's a book right before Acts, right? John, go to John. I just want to show you this. 
just because people think I'm nuts, and so I, I'd show you that I am. But go to John 14. Okay, John 14. Everybody see the, the um, John 14, 1 through... Well, you guys, it's at the very beginning. Let's just do 1 through 6. I want to read that for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Good. Okay. Now, so we all think that that, what does that mean? What is this whole dwelling with you thing? What does everybody think it is? I mean, you guys probably know it. Yeah, we think it's heaven, right? So, but what if it's not? What if it's actually Jesus living with you and you with Jesus? So go to John 14, verse 23. John 14, same chapter, verse 23. Okay, so here's the thing. It's the same word in Greek. The make our home and mansions or whatever your thing in John 14 says in the very beginning. It's the same word in Greek. So this dwelling with God is not that he, God's building you some house in heaven. It's that when you, when you believe in Jesus, God lives with you. You live in the house of God. The household of faith. Right? And that the dwelling of God is with man is the great promise of the end times. So what happens is now this whole idea of Jerusalem is a place where God lives is now all been transferred to Jesus is the place where God lives. And when you are baptized into Christ, you now live with God. Right? Will that ever end? No. See, that's the point, is that you're dwelling with God and Him dwelling with you will never end because you will always be in Christ. That's the promise. That's the promise. And so what happens when we all come together in this physical location on earth, is this actually God's house? No, it's just I mean, we could tear this building down and build a different one, and that would be God's house, right? He's not bound by these walls. But it's God's house because he's here in his word, in his sacraments, in his church, in his promises, right? So God is here. And we all come and meet together around his word and sacraments. And we acknowledge in our worship service, yes, he's here. We sing the song of the angels. Isaiah 6, when God is present, what do the angels sing? Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. What do we sing? Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabbath. Why? Because he's here. What do you say after, the, after Pastor Sal consecrates the elements, right? And then you sing, what do you sing? Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Well, guess what? In John 29, John, before he says Lamb of God, says, you know what word he says? Behold. Well, what do you say? Behold. Right there. I, I believe he's present in his sacrament. I believe he's present in the word. We are here because the Lamb of God is here. And what does the Lamb do? Takes away the sins of the world. And I need that. So I came to have my sins taken away too. Whose sins? The whole world. 
So you can you can invite your friend and neighbor, and that Jesus is for them too. Yeah, does that make sense? So so this is the point: is we still want to bring everyone to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not a city in the Middle East. Jerusalem is now wherever Christ is. Okay, does that make sense? And that's actually what's happening in the book of Acts as they're thinking that, oh, the church is the new temple and the church is in Jerusalem. Therefore, we still got to get everyone to Jerusalem. And then when the Spirit starts converting people outside of Jerusalem, they're going, what? That doesn't make any sense. And what they're going to find out is that wherever the word of God is preached, there God is active. Does that make sense? And wherever the word of God is preached, there are your brothers and sisters. You don't say he's not my brother because he's different than I am. She's not my sister because she doesn't speak the same language as I do. Right? You don't say that. If they're in Christ, brothers and sisters. No different. No better, no worse. Just brothers and sisters. Does that make sense? So that's what we're, we're transitioning in this, in this section of Acts. We're, actually, we're literally transitioning between a Jerusalem church and a worldwide church. And we're learning with the apostles how that looks and what does that mean. Okay? So number two, who empowers prophets to speak? The Spirit. This is important. Prophets don't speak of their own accord. They speak by the Holy Spirit. And if they ain't speaking by the Holy Spirit, then don't listen. Right? This is important. If someone stands up and says, I have a brilliant idea, you say, no thanks. Just tell me what the Spirit says. I don't want to hear from you. I want to hear from the Spirit. Why do we have creeds and the Book of Concord? Luther's Small Catechism, which is in the Book of Concord, by the way. Why do we have all those things? It's, just, it's a profession of our faith. Profession of our faith, but what else does it do? Well, the Holy Spirit worked through the church to give those things to us, but what do they do for us practically? Right. All of a sudden, Pastor Sell sets out and says, Well, I think actually we worship, we were saved by eating trees. And you go, I do think that's right. And he goes, Well, how would you prove me wrong? And you go, I got a bunch of books that says the church has never taught that. And you've got to show me from Scripture where you're getting that from. Right? And you have the right as a Christian to walk up to anybody who's teaching the Bible or preaching the Bible and say, where are you getting that from? Show it to me. Right? And if they can't, you say, I, I, don't, I can't trust that that's the Holy Spirit working. Because you're saying different than all the teachers of the church have said, than what the script, most importantly what the scriptures say. Right? And that's what the book of Concord does. It says, this is what the scriptures say, and this is how we have dealt with issues around what the scriptures say. The scriptures say we're saved by grace. There are also verses that say that works are important. How do we deal with that? Well, the book of Concord already tells us what we do with it. It's like, well, it's really easy, actually. It's a law gospel issue, one is justification, one is sanctification. I mean, there's all kinds of things in the book of Concord to help us work through that issue. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just open up and go, I don't know, how's the church done this? Read it and go, oh, there it is. That's what the Bible says. Right? Does it make sense? That's what they're there for. Have you ever read the Book of Concord? Just be honest. Have you heard of the Book of Concord? All right, here's, here's the thing. Um, since we're doing websites, bookofconcord.org. It's free. The entire Book of Concord is out there for free. Public domain. You can you can eat it. You can put salad dressing on it. You can give it to your friends. I don't care. It's free. Whole thing's up there for free. Okay? Now, 
It's kind of old. That's why it's there for free, because it's a 1921 translation, so it's kind of old-timey. But here's the thing. Don't read the whole thing. You won't. You'll fall asleep. You'll get confused. You'll get lost and frustrated and bored. Don't do that. Look up the Augsburg Confession... and read articles 1 through 20. Read articles 1 through 20. Don't read the rest. I mean, you can, but you'll get bored. Okay? Articles 1 through 20 is pretty much what it means to be a Lutheran from a theological point of view. You know what article 1 says? We believe in God. That's Article 1 of the Oxford Confession. We believe in God. If you got a problem with that, take it up with him. And the God we believe in is one essence and three persons. Have you heard that before? Sunday. Yeah, exactly. And we deny anyone who teaches otherwise. That's, like, that's all of Article 1. Article 2? Everyone sins. Everyone sins. There's original sin. There's actual sin. We believe it's sin. It's bad to be a sinner. It's awful. That's Article 2. Article 3, Jesus saves us from those sins. Article 4, we are justified by grace through faith without works. Article 5, in order to give us this salvation by grace through faith, God gave us the office of the Holy Ministry. Because through the office of the Holy Ministry, we receive word and sacraments. Okay, And then we're off and running. Now it's going to talk about sacraments and the church and how do we deal with all this. And it just keeps going. And sanctification, Article 6 is sanctification. Now that we've been saved by grace through the Apostle of Ministry, we live in sanctification. And then where does all this take place in Article 7? In the church. Article 8, let's talk more about the church. Right? That's the way it goes. It's not very long. But the point is, this is what your church believes. Why? It was written in 1530. Okay. June 25th, 1530, Augsburg Confession was read out loud. And here's the thing. This is because the Catholic Church was saying, you, you Lutherans are crazy. What do you believe? And the Lutherans said, we believe what the church has always believed. And they're like, uh-uh. We went, uh-huh. And they said, prove it. He said, okay. So he wrote it down. And the whole point of the Augsburg Confession is, this is what the church has always taught. We're making up zero new things. Zero. We don't want to be innovative or new. We want to be old and repeating what the Bible says. That's all we want. Right? And the Catholic Church said, well, you're right on a lot of things, but we disagreed in a couple. And that's why the apology of the Augsburg Confession is the next thing. Don't read that. Don't read it. That's not because there's nothing bad in it. It's just because you'll be so lost and confused because you need a degree in philosophy to understand the way they're arguing. The arguments are great, but you've got to understand Aristotelian philosophy before you can, and Augustinian philosophy before you can understand the Apologetics of the Confession because Melanchthon wrote it from a philosophical point of view. It's just complicated. It's good. I like it. It's just really hard to read. Okay? But if you want to read... Um, read the Augsburg Confession, Articles 1 through 20. You can read the rest of the articles. They just get into specific agencies in the church at that time, like monks and fasting, which we don't really deal with that much. But you can read them. They're just boring. I read the Augsburg Confession on the way to Tanzania. Or the entire thing on the plane. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I was hoping it put me to sleep. It didn't. I read the whole thing. So, yeah. So, um, I'm not saying the Augsburg Confession is inspired like the Bible is, but what I'm saying is the creeds and the confessions of the church are there to help us when someone speaks to determine whether or not that person is speaking by the Holy Spirit or if they're just making stuff up. Okay? Now, you guys did very well on that. Here's the next question that I want you to think about. How do you hear the Holy Spirit? What? Through people. Through people. Does the Holy Spirit speak without people? 
no people were involved in getting you that Bible? Oh, yeah, sure. yeah, lots of people were involved in getting you the Bible. Yeah. Right? First of all, Luke had to write this book. What language did he write in? Greek. Greek. Okay. Well, guess what? Luke wrote and someone made a copy first. Okay? So the early church got Luke's writings through copies. So some person made those copies. And then most of the people in those churches probably didn't read. They probably heard it read to them. So now someone else is reading a copy that someone made of Luke's. Oh, by the way, Luke was a person. Right? The Spirit is speaking to Luke through the copy, through the guy reading the copy, and then somebody eventually translated that into English, and now you're reading... Oh, wait, you didn't read that either, because that was probably submitted to a publisher who put it in book form, who, you know, right, who put verses... See all these people involved? And, and does that make it less spiritual? No. No. It's just the way that God does stuff. It's just the way it goes. I mean, look what happens. It doesn't say, and the Holy Spirit showed up and everyone woke up from a dream and went, hey, this is what's going to happen. No, it says, and one of them named Agabus, a guy with a name, stood up and spoke for the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. So what is the, what is the one way on earth that you can trust is always the Holy Spirit speaking? No, me. Oh. No, okay. Yeah, no, what is it? Scripture. The scriptures. Okay? And that's why we, that's why as Lutherans, we are a church that follows sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone. Because even with all the good stuff the church has produced and all the good teachers, if you want to establish an eternal truth, what do you do? You go to the scriptures. And if it doesn't say it there, then you don't confess it. You can have an opinion on it. You can say, well, we think this. But if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, it's the scriptures. Does that make sense? Susan. Is there an issue with the trans... The, yes. The translation? Yes. Or, okay. Absolutely. So what? That's why I know things you don't know. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. No, I'm just saying. Because there's King James Version. Yeah, that's right. So um, those of us who study Scripture professionally, um, that's why we learn Greek and Hebrew. But it's not just learning Greek and Hebrew. It's actually learning to read manuscripts. It's learning to understand the different manuscripts and how we got the text that we have now. It's learning to understand the process of copying manuscripts. And when you're studying a passage and you're really getting to the nitty-gritty of what the passage says, you aren't even using just the Greek New Testament. I mean, I look up scans of document of manuscripts from 200 AD, and I read the actual manuscript, and I say... This manuscript, this manuscript, you line them up, you look at how the Greek word's been used. I mean, it's not just opening a book and reading a word. It is intensive study of all of this because this is a translation of a translation of a text that was compiled together over centuries and you just keep going back and back and back and back and back until you can figure out, you know. I mean, 99% of it, it's like you go back and you say, okay, everything goes back to this one thing and we're, and we're good, right? It's easy. But there are some places where you have to look at individual manuscripts and line them up and say, we have different readings, we have different texts, we have different... And you've got to go through all that. I prefer the one you're reading versus the one you're not reading is the easy answer. Um... Yeah, mm, no, okay. there aren't. Every translation has its strengths and every translation has its weakness. Uh, the ESV is a very good translation. The ESV was done by a very wide range of scholars, meaning all very good scholars, all PhDs in Bible, all can read the original languages, right? All of them way smarter than I'll ever pretend to be. And But also wide, meaning there's Lutherans on there, Anglicans, Catholics, Baptists, Methodists. So, so you're not getting a translation that's all swayed to one. The NIV was very swayed. NIV was very Protestant, not Lutheran. 
And that's actually what, what happened is it got worse and worse and worse. But it was good. It was still pretty good. Tra- it was still a very good translation. But the ESV actually more, made more of an effort to be more of a Protestant-based translation. And the other cool thing for us is that actually Concordia Seminary St. Louis and Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne were asked to be advisors on this scripture, on this translation. So I personally know a couple of profs that wrote to the ESV committee and said, please reconsider the translation of this passage because I think you missed it. And I know at least two of those changes are actually in your ESV. Actually, one of them is in the Book of Acts. So our own seminaries actually had a, word, a hand in making sure this was a good translation. Um, the King James Version is, a, is an extremely good translation. Extremely good translation. However, it's based on manuscripts that we have found um, to be not the most accurate manuscripts. Because they didn't have... When the, when the King James was translated in 1611, it actually was trans, it's actually based on Tyndale's translation from 1534, something like that. Um, they just didn't have the same manuscripts we have. They just hadn't found them yet. So the ones we found are actually older, and they, it has different readings. And that's okay. We understand why. We know what happened. Just as an aside, it's nothing to do with That wasn't an aside. That was Racks 11. Yeah. I, a friend of mine and I, we went to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Yeah. Store, yeah. Looking through the books. Yeah. And in the books, there's a Luther small catechism yeah. on the shelves. Yeah, people are always giving away catechisms. I don't know why. By the way, speaking of catechisms, I, is it still available? There's a small catechism app. You should check it out. I don't know if it's still available. I have my phone. So. Is it still available? Yeah. It's fantastic. You can have a small catechism on your phone. It's, and it's like the whole catechism right there. Just look it up during lunch. Read it. It's fantastic. Yeah, if you haven't read the small catechism, you should read it. It's like 30 pages. And it's just phenomenal. What's it? Okay, so if it's a small, it must be a large. There's a large. <laughs> Luther said a whole lot more than the large. Okay. Hey, Luther wrote the small catechism for parents and pastors to teach their children or the people who don't know that much. Actually, even for pastors who don't know much to review. The large catechism is really for pastors. Um, and so it goes much more in depth in things. But you're welcome to read it. It's in the Book of Concord. Oh, sorry, previous slides. It's here. Large catechism is part of the book. The large and small catechism of Luther are both in the Book of Concord. So it's available. I love the large catechism. It's fun to read. But it's, it's much longer. Hence the name. But Lutherans aren't that inventive when it comes to names. <laughs> you do realize that, right? Or, well, you have a small catechism, and the longer one is the large catechism. All right, so number three. Who did the church help? Believers in Judea. Yes. Did you hear that? Who? The believers, the brothers in Judea. Did he say, there's going to be a famine, therefore go help everyone in Judea? Nope. What do they do? They help the church. This is, might be a hard pill for us to swallow, but it is the New Testament pattern as the church serves the church. You can argue with it, but it is the teaching of the New Testament, is that you do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Okay? Which means we need to make sure that there's no one in our church that has needs. We take care of them. This is a family, right? We make sure we're all taken care of. That's what we do. And when the world sees us loving that way, you know what they do? They want in. And they're curious. Why do you love each other like that? Well, let us tell you, right? Because we've been loved with a love that you won't believe until you believe it. So um, this is actually something that's very, very strong in the New Testament that I want to bring out because I think it's important and I think sometimes we get a little wrong is that the church is first of all called to serve the fellow believers. We serve each other in Christ. Okay? And this will be the pattern in the rest of the book of Acts and also in Paul's letters is that he will take up a collection from the churches to help the fellow Christians who are in need. Over and over and over and over. 
Okay? Cool. Questions or thoughts? Comments? Okay, let's read Acts 12, verses 1 through 5. Yes, I told you. You guys tried to throw me off. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, thank you very much. All right, now, number... Okay, okay, number four. Where are we? Now we're back in Jerusalem. Okay, so I'm telling you that the pattern of the book of Acts... You got to keep up with where we are, and now we are back in Jerusalem. So we were in Antioch. Now we're back down south in Jerusalem. Okay, and what's going on in the church of Jerusalem? You still got the apostles pretty much hanging out at the Jerusalem church. So when you go to back to Jerusalem, you got James and John and Peter, right? And you can kind of read in the rest of the twelve at this point which would include Matthias, or Matthias, depending on how you pronounce it, okay? So, at this point, now we're back to Jerusalem with the, with the church being there. But we're going to have a problem, okay? Because what's happening? There's persecution by the Jews, and specifically by King Herod. Yeah. That's right. And there's a reason for persecuting the church. He's not doing this for fun, right? He likes he likes he likes the attention. Okay. So number five, who is James? He was a leader of the church at that time, but he was a brother of Jesus. Okay. Now here's the thing. I don't know if it's a leader or a leader. Right. This is not the James that is the leader of the church. This is the James that is the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, that was one of the top three disciples. Okay, remember, the top three disciples are Peter, James, Peter, James and John. Who is the best of the three? John. Thank you very much, John. You're right. Well, Peter is actually the leader, right? He's always named first, and he always represents the twelve. But James and John are kind of right there with him, right? They are the top three. So when Jesus goes out of transfiguration... Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes alone to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John go with him. Right? When he goes to heal, Peter, James, and John. It's always that's the inner three that go with Jesus. And in most of this in the New Testament, they are the first three named. Peter, James, and John. So that's the James we're referring to here is James the son of Zebedee, the top three disciple. Now, he's going to die. I don't want to ruin the end for you, but he's going to die in chapter twelve. There's another James that will take over, that will be the head of the church in Jerusalem, that will speak in John in Acts chapter 15. That James is the brother of Jesus, the author of the book of the New Testament. Okay, remember, there are at least five, five Jameses in the New Testament. Okay, the next question, number six, who is Herod? And the problem is there are six Herods. Five Jameses, six Herods. I didn't write the book, just the way it goes. This is, yeah, we'll get there. So, okay, so James is an apostle. Now, what this means is, and James is going to be killed, okay? So, um, we're going to start losing apostles. Okay, so in, in chapter two, in chapter twelve, verse two, Herod kills James, the brother of John, with a sword. And what this means is now the apostles are being killed. So the church in Jerusalem is no longer the way it was in the beginning of Acts, where 
everything the apostles did was awesome and thousands of people were converted and they were doing miracles and it's like they were Jesus on earth. Now all of a sudden they're getting persecuted and killed. Okay, so this, this narrative is changing. So number six, who is Herod? There are six Herods in the New Testament. I will forget one of them at least, so forgive me. Herod, the Great. Herod the Great is the dude that reigned when Jesus was born. We don't know when he began reigning, but he stopped reigning around, it's hard to say, around 4 BC. Okay? And you, it's kind of hard to say. Some people say it's in the 40s, some say it's in the different. It's kind of hard to say when he started his reigning, but he reigned until 4 BC. Okay? So 4 BC is, if you, if you do the math right, Jesus is born around 6 BC. Okay, because of the reign of Herod. So this is the Herod that, that killed the babies in, in uh, Bethlehem. This is the Herod that met with the wise men. This is the Herod that all of Jerusalem was upset when he got upset because this Herod was awful. He killed people for fun. Literally. He killed his own family because he was paranoid that everyone was trying to take his throne because everyone was trying to take his throne, right? Because he's king. Okay? Um, he's also kind of a half-breed so what happens is when he, when he dies, his kingdom is divided between his sons. Okay? And this is where you get the confusion. Because now you have Herod. They're all Herod. All of them are called Herod. Okay? You have Herod Archelaus. He's set up to be, when, when they divide his kingdom, he gets Judea. Okay? And then you have Herod Antipas. And then you have Herod Philip. Now, I got to warn you. There's another Herod Philip that isn't that Herod Philip. There is a Herod Philip that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3 verse 1 that isn't this Herod Philip. And that Herod Philip never became king of anything. I didn't make this stuff up. Now, this Herod was supposed to be king over Judea, which includes Jerusalem. But he, when he first, when his dad died, he was given the kingdom. You know what he did? He killed 3,000 people. Nice. Yeah. And so the Roman emperor was like, you stink. So he only lasted until 6 A.D., he was deposed. He was not ever given. Uh, the, the Roman Caesar kept saying, well, you know, you're kind of in a trial period. We'll see if this works out. Not too happy the way things are going. Finally, 680 is like, you're out. You're done. And so what happened is the Romans sent in their own guy. And it was called a governor. You, na- you know the result of this because... From 26 to 36, the Roman governor was a guy named... No, that's Caesar. Pontius Pilate. That's why That's why the one in power in Jerusalem is not a Herod, but a Roman. Because of this. Okay? Because Herod Archelaus failed. So now after Herod... After Archelaus is not a line of Herods, but a line of Roman governors. And from 26 to 36 is Pontius Pilate. That's a U. Okay? So he's the Roman governor because he failed. So is, okay, so is the BC there with BC? Is that at the death of Jesus or BC? birth? At the birth. So if he died at 4 B.C. Jesus is born in 6 B.C. Pardon me? Jesus is born in 6 B.C. One of the great confusions of history is that Jesus is born before Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so so BC years get smaller as they get closer as they get younger. But if he but if he died at four BC and Jesus wasn't born until no. zero. No, he's born at six. So Jesus is born at six BC. 
So Jesus is born at 6 BC before 4 BC. So 4, 4 BC is two years after 6 BC. Right. But I thought BC started at zero. It's supposed to. So this is the epitomation of why time is completely arbitrary. Yes, yeah, and this is why this is exactly right. We just made the whole thing up. So the best we can figure out is that this was all adjusted backwards by a guy who was trying to make the the basically his boss's birthday line up with the right year. So he just shifted the whole calendar six years. That's the best we can figure out. Is that this actually happened in the in the fourth or fifth century? They just shifted the entire calendar. I'm like, ah, it was this year. Because remember, there's no calendars. When Jesus was walking around, it wasn't like, oh, what year is it? It's whatever BC. Well, it's when he was walking around, they were saying it's this year of this Caesar's reign. So they didn't use those BC. It's the fourth year of Caesar Augustus's reign, right? I mean, you have this in a gospel, a gospel of Luke. And so zero is really six BC. That's correct. So it's six years later than you think it is. Boy, am I feeling old. The good news is my retirement, I'm going to start it six years earlier than I'm supposed to and say, well, according to Jesus. Yeah, I know how it works. So, so yeah, um, we got time, right? We're in Luke, so let's go to Luke. Go look at Luke, Luke 2. So this is the way they date things. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The whole verse be registered. So he's dating it. He's saying this happened in that year. That's how the, that's their calendar. So everyone knows when Caesar Augustus sent out a registration census, supposedly, when Luke wrote this. We don't, unfortunately. But Luke's audience obviously did because he's like, that's the date. Like if I said to you, hey, you remember when the Twin Towers fell down when they got knocked over those planes? You know, I'll go, yeah, I remember that. Right? Now, we assign it to a date on a calendar, but before a calendar, you go, yeah, I know when that was. We'll say, well, like 10, 10 years after that. Right? Like, oh, yeah, okay. That's what they did. They did it by earthquakes, solar eclipses. Because remember, that freaks you out. A solar eclipse will freak you out. We knew it was coming, and it was weird. Could you imagine? You're like, honey, I'm going to go kill a whatever they killed, right? And then you're like, um, giant orb in sky, dark. And then it comes light again. And then it's light again. You're like, wow, it was weird. So they remembered those things. Do you remember it when it went dark at noon? I do. Well, five years later, this happened. Like, oh, yeah, okay. They didn't. The, the cycles of the moon. They kept track of the cycles of the moon. And that's why... Um, most of the ancient datings are actually based on lunar cycles and not solar cycles. Remember, this all got twisted with our modern dating systems, which is heliocentric instead of... The cycles of the moon rotate yearly. So how do you date a cycle of the moon? You start figuring out the pattern. They actually started to figure out the pattern. Like, oh, it's a new moon, therefore we're in the spring. Which is how you date Easter. Of what year? Of what year? Um, so God actually told them to keep track of months. So in the Old Testament, God says, this is the first month starting now and start counting. And so when the moon cycles through, that's the next month. And so they do they actually start counting months. Okay, remember. Months, years, and days are all physical realities in our universe. The only thing that is not is a week, which is based on creation. The whole world confesses the creation every seven days. Right? Because the only reason I have a week is because God did all this in seven days. Okay? Yeah, he rested. On the seventh day. Whenever that is. It's Saturday. I'm curious about the harem. Yeah, we're not done yet. Okay, because which one was John? Hold on. Okay, Okay, so that's Herod Archelaus. Don't spoil it. Now, at the same time, 
there was a dude named Herod Antipas, or Antipas, and he reigned um, not in Judea, kind of just north of Judea and into Galilee. Okay, really Galilee. And this is the guy, he reigned um, really into like, I always forget the dates, into the 30s. So this is the Herod that John the Baptist um, says, it's not right for you to marry your brother's wife. That's that Herod. This is the Herod that says, I want to see Jesus. That's this. So the Herod that Jesus interacts with is Herod Antipas. Okay? He's the one that um, it says that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. That's that Herod. Okay? At the same time, Herod Philip is reigning up east and northeast of Galilee. So he's up. Jesus doesn't really interact with him much, but you read about him a couple times. Philip the Tetrarch. You'll, you'll read about the New Testament. Okay? That's this Philip. So these three guys are reigning. They take over for Herod the Great. This guy messes all up and gets deposed, and the Romans send in their own guy instead. These guys keep going. Okay? This is a situation in the Holy Land until 41 AD. In 41 AD, a guy named Herod Agrippa the first in 41 AD takes over all the land that was once ruled by Herod the Great. Okay? He doesn't do it immediately. In 37, he's given part of the land. In 39, so basically in 37, he's given what Philip was reigning over. In 39, he's given what Herod Antipas was reigning over. And then in 41, he's actually given Jerusalem and Judea. Okay? So this is that Herod. This is Agrippa I. Okay? I hope your study notes agree with me. Yeah, it does. See? There you go. Probably Herod Agrippa I. Okay? So so in 41 AD, Agrippa I, Herod, remember all these guys are named Herod. So Herod Agrippa I is now reigning the same land that his father, grandfather, kind of grandfather. There's some weirdness in there. Because remember, they're marrying each other's sisters and daughters and the whole thing's messed up. So remember the, the dancing girl? Salome? Yeah. That's, she marries, it's all, her mom marries the brothers, which is ugh. And then she marries her uncle. Yeah. yeah. Then they have kids. So is that your grandson or your uncle or your nephew or your cousin? Or your? I don't know who you are anymore. You know, we're all Herod. Just call me Herod. I'm good. Who are you married to? It doesn't matter. I'm Herod. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Okay. Now, this Agrippa I is this dude in Acts. We're not done, though. There's yet another Herod. But good for you. His name is Agrippa the two. And he's the dude that Paul will stand in trial for. Right? So Paul will stand trial under Agrippa II, whose wife's name is Bernice. And we'll meet them in the end of Acts. So Agrippa I is the one who... Is in 12. Okay. And I think, is he also... Mm, he's later also, and I can't remember where else he shows up. Well, he I dies in the end of 12. Yeah. But so this is the one we're talking about in 12. He, we meet him and he dies. He doesn't stick around that long. Okay. So what that means is the end of chapter 12 is the end of Agrippa. The first. Okay? And as you see, it says AD 41 right there in the study Bible. Okay. So one of these guys is in Judea. Yeah. One's in Galilee. Yeah. And East, northeast. Yeah. What are these places? Are they provinces? Are they kingdoms? Uh, yeah. What are they? Yeah. But they're all under Roman rule. Yeah. 
they're all part of their own empire, but they're part of. So, okay. Uh, I've really exhausted my knowledge on this, by the way. I'm just making stuff up at this point. So they rule, they rule by the pleasure of the Romans. The Romans. Okay? So what really you want to think of is that um, under David was when the, the kingdom of Israel was at its largest. And that's really the Holy Land, the promised land. Okay? So then when the, when the Greeks took over... In, in 333 BC, Alexander the Pretty Good took over the entire world, right? He was full of himself, so he called himself the Great. Um, he took over the entire world, and he died, as usually happens, right, in history. You know, yay, you conquered. You're probably going to die pretty soon. So look out for the blues, you know. Mm. Yay, the whole parade, look out. But he dies a couple years later, and he gives his kingdom is divided before his four sons, kind of like Herod. Okay. Well, one of those one of those sons ends up taking over Israel. So Israel is still a nation at this point, but it's now given up to Greek rule. Okay? And the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and that's that's how that's the whole Hanukkah thing. Have you heard of Hanukkah? Mm-hmm. So what happened is one of these guys, forget David, one of Alexander's sons is ruling over is given Israel, 200 years later basically, or 150 years later, he's ruling over Israel, and one of his son's descendants is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and he comes in Jerusalem, which is still the Holy Land, still inhabited by the Jews, but it's under Greek control, and he says, forget you Jews, I'm going to set up Zeus in the temple, and I'm going to sacrifice a pig to Zeus. Because that's the most offensive thing you could possibly do, right? Because pigs are unclean and they're monotheists. So you set up your false god, you worship a pig to him. And the, the Jews said, we're going to kill you. So this guy named Metathius has a son named Judas Maccabeus who starts the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus IV because they set up this thing. And what happens is, as long as the menorah is blowing, as long as the candles stay lit in the temple, they're winning. And it miraculously stays lit for eight days. And at the end of the eight days, the temple has been reclaimed for Yahweh, and they celebrate the festival of lights. That's Hanukkah. Okay? took place in, I think it's 167 B.C., something like that, 164, somewhere around there. Which chariot was it that buddied up with Pilate when Jesus was on? That's Antipas. That's Antipas. They become friends that day. Okay, before they were enemies. But they become friends that day. Because their territories butt up against each other. Right? He's up here in Galilee... Pontius Pilate is down here, and they're not really getting along, and then because of Jesus, they become friends. Does that make sense? Okay. We did finish 11. All right. One more. Don't close your Bibles yet. When did all this occur? During Passover. Okay? And next week, we'll, we'll get to this, the import of this. But, but we're setting the scene now. We're in Jerusalem for the Passover. Anything else happen when someone was put to death by a ruler in Jerusalem during Passover? Sound familiar? Jesus? Okay? And what's going to happen is Peter... You think it's James, but it's not. Peter is going to die and rise. Not literally. Metaphorically. He's going to be taken into prison. And an angel is going to come set him free. And he's going to appear to a woman who's not going to understand that he's actually alive. She's going to think it's a vision. And she's going to go tell the disciples. And they're going to be like, you're out of your mind. Peter's not outside. He's in prison. Kind of sound familiar, doesn't it? 
Okay, so Luke's going to tell this story this time, but it's going to be Peter. We think it's going to be James because he's actually dead, but it actually becomes Peter's resurrection story. It's kind of it's kind of cool how Luke does it. So that's next week. That's what we'll do in the rest of twelve. Okay. Any questions? Not about Herod. I honestly ran out of my knowledge about Herod. Um, yeah, Herod's just hard to keep track of. It's one of those things. Herod is a title. It's a guy's name, but it actually is, it's from, it, Herod is actually a Greek word. And it means, kind of how, it depends on when you're using it in the history of Greek, but it means either hero, or, hero is the best translation. Actually, it's, it's hero dios, okay, which is where we get hero. It's actually the word hero. That's why it's hard to translate because it's actually just a transliteration. So it's like valiant warrior. But people stopped naming their kids Herod because he kept killing people and marrying his sister and daughter and cousin. and ugh. So you just don't name your kid Herod anymore. It's like, no, not really. It's like naming your kid Nero. No, not going to do that. Or Caligula. People don't do that because it's just bad. All right, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, As we read about the history of the church and rulers and political things and calendars, we are reminded that you are a God who is not removed from us, who is not far off, but is here with us in your word and your sacraments and in our days, that today is the day of salvation. For you come to us once again with your grace and mercy in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So keep us ever in that one true faith. Bless us this night as we travel home. And let us sleep in the peace of your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.